This episode of the Sound Girls podcast features a portion of an interview from the Sound Girls Living History Project. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans. The project seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Interviews are conducted by SoundGirls members with guidance from experienced interviewers in the audio industry. For interview subjects, the program can be a way to share your story to an audience who may not know what the industry used to be like or about the types of jobs that women have performed in the industry for decades. Interviews will be available publicly in our Living History Project and for educational use and research through our social media, YouTube channel, and the SoundGirls podcast. The oral history interviews are typically unedited and will be archived in their original form. This interview with Tana Douglas is almost two hours long, so be sure to watch the rest of this episode on YouTube. Links are in the description of this episode, but you can go straight to the Soundgirls YouTube page as well. Be sure to also check out the interview that we did with Tana in season one. The Soundgirls podcast is sponsored by QSC. Sign up on our website and join the EQL directory. The EQL directory seeks to bring the industry toward gender parity by uplifting and promoting the work of women and gender nonconforming people. Go to our website, soundgirls.org, for more information. So, hello, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Juliet. I'm a member of Sound Girls, and I'm very happy to um, bring to you all Ms. Tana Douglas, also known as the very first female roadie, the very first Sound Girl. Yeah, representing here. Yay! <laughs> and Tana actually has uh, quite a breadth of experience in the industry, um, not only in sound, but also in lights, also in tour management and logistics. And we're going to cover all of that and, and um, let Tana share about her life and experience and, and um, also um, get as, as deep in the weeds as she wants to, because this is a, a technical group and um, for all of our members who are part of the Sound Girls private face group, we get very technical because we're trying to help each other and, and we do really care about um, the equipment and, um, you know, that's why we're sound engineers or engineers in general um, are, are part of the show, our artistic part, um, being the technical side as um, well as the management side, uh, many of us. So. Um, I hope uh, everybody can go and read the profile on Tana that is already up on Sound Girls. Uh, we're, we're sort of launching off from there, um, but um, we'll, we'll kind of land and get deep into it. Um, so um, let's see, Tana, um, just to, to begin, a little bit before the beginning, um, what kind of music did you listen to growing up? Well, first, thanks for having me. And <laughs> I've been looking forward to this. So I think this is a great project that Sound Girls is doing with um, a living history type thing. I think it's wonderful. And I think it's long overdue. So this is great. Um, music, yes, of course, it all started with music, didn't it? I think um, for any and all of us that um, ended up in this industry, 
we had a love for music to start with and it developed from there. We just went, as opposed to the band side, it went to the work side of the industry. And my choices in music have always been more alternative, uh, a little bit darker, you know, I'd like Eric Burden and the Animals, Janis Joplin, those sort of bands. It was always the darker ones. The, the light, cheery, happy, poppy songs were not for me. <laughs> didn't suit my life, didn't suit my story, didn't suit me at all. Um, I didn't come from a, a bright, cheery, happy place. So it reflected in the music that I listened to, but it's all good music, you know. So that was, that was my genre. My genre was the darker, the heavier sort of music. That's great. That's awesome. Um, so um, this is in Australia, right? This is in Australia. Yes, that's that's where I started. I started in Australia. What part and, of Australia? Uh, mm -hmm. And well, I was, originally I was born in Queensland, but um, with my mother, I did tons of travelling up and down the east coast, pretty much nonstop, until I was eleven years old, and then I settled in uh, a private school, which was quite a contrast for me had been running feral for 11 years, then all of a sudden I was in a, girl, a girls' church of England boarding school. That was a bit of a culture shock. <laughs> but the one thing that saved us was Sundays we had um, time to ourselves and we just played music. We'd play album after album after album and luckily there was a few other girls in the school that were really into music as well. So we'd kind of we'd strive to find, you know, what was the next new thing, what was coming out, you know, who it was, you know, what, what bands it was. And this was, you know, very, you know, late, well, very early 70s, I'd say. I think I started in that school in 1970 and I was there for three years through 73, start of 74. So that's where I got a lot of my musical upbringing from, was from these girls in this boarding school. And I was two years younger than all my classmates. So I had their influences older, you know, they'd been around two years, which isn't a lot now, but it was a lot back then, you know, when you're 11 years old and someone's 13, it's like, ooh, I'm going to listen to that. <laughs> so that was, I got to listen to stuff that the normal 10, 11 year old wasn't listening to because I was hanging out with the older girls and, and they obviously had been at this a lot longer. So, and luckily, luckily they had good taste. <laughs> and so they were everybody was pretty independent at the school well it's a boarding school you tend to get independent at a boarding school it's a survival thing you know it's no matter how it's cracked up that it's a, a girl's ladies finishing school or whatever you you have to survive you know you're there there's you know no parents there's you know whether they're nuns or whether their church you know something to do with the church it was a church of england school so there were rules there were strict rules so yes you had to be independent definitely mm -hmm. i'm a survivor of a convent school for secondary also uh high school level but it wasn't boarding school so i didn't go away until ba my my bachelor's but right. um i can relate yeah, <laughs> to exactly yeah yeah and being kind of in a bubble, aren't you, kind of at that point? Yeah, yeah that was probably the first bubble I got into, exactly. Music was the second one. <laughs> and then this uh, industry. I'm sorry? And then this industry was the third bubble I got into. Uh, uh, was there musical training there or before for you? You know, it's funny. I 
I think back and the only thing I remember with that school was there was a veranda that had maybe like six little rooms that were just like like big closets and you'd open the door and look in and there was a piano in each room. But I never, for some reason, I never got offered any sort of music classes or it never appealed to me. I think it was more one of those you practice for hours, they wrap you on the knuckles if you get it wrong and it just didn't appeal to me at all. You know, we did a... Gilbert and Sullivan play once a year and I was one of the three little girls from school in the Mikado and that was about as that, that was that was as adventurous as I got on the performing side once I'd done that I knew it was absolutely not for me yeah <laughs> much happier behind the scenes um how do you think do you think uh, those early early influences um, you got into it a little bit, but um, did you start getting interested in audio and engineering at that point and have any sort of an inkling? No, I didn't know it existed. You know, I didn't know it existed until I was about 15, 16 years old. I just turned 16 and I went to my first club. I got invited to a club, which of course you're supposed to be 21 or over. But I get, <laughs> I get invited to this club in Sydney. I'd moved down to Sydney by that point. I'd already run away from home and been on the run for a while. So I'd <laughs> roaming around you the country. Escaped the boarding school. Okay. <laughs> from boarding school, exactly. I'd been to a festival and from that festival I ended up down in Sydney, and which is quite a distance. I'd travelled quite a distance in my 15-year-old self. It's like about 1,400 miles off I went. <laughs> But um, I got invited to this club, which was called the Whiskey A Go-Go, which is obviously based on the whiskey over here. They reproduced one over there. And um, there was some American R&B band playing at the time. And I'd never been to a club. I was still in my hippie phase. You know, you're lucky to get me with shoes on. (laughs) So I turned up to this club having been invited. And um, for some reason, they put me next to the sound desk, you know, the guy who was in charge, the tour manager, who became a really lifelong friend of mine and a mentor. He put me by the by the sound desk and said, just stay here, he said, and we'll come and get you between sets, you know. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm standing there and I look down to my left and I see this, you know, this console and these two guys there and I'm like, what is all this stuff? And then I'm looking at the stage and I'm seeing all these people coming on and off the stage handing off equipment or fixing a mic stand or whatever. And I'm like, who are these guys, you know? And so what happened was I actually, when this person, Swampy, Wayne Jarvis was the the tour manager who got me into this, it was all his fault. Uh, When he came back during one of the breaks, I said to him, I said, who are all these guys that keep coming on and off stage and stuff and these guys here? And he said, oh, they're roadies, you know? So that was the first time I'd heard the term and the first time I'd seen the equipment And I was just fascinated. I was just so interested in it all. I mean, I couldn't for the love of you. People say, what was the name of the band? I have no idea. (laughs) I really wasn't that interested in the band. I mean, it was some funky soul band, which isn't my thing anyway, but I was just fascinated with everything else that was going on around it. So that was the start of it for me. All the stagecraft, it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. It fascinated me. Like, oh, my God, what is all of this? Yeah. so Philip Petit's tightrope walk, what was that? How did, was that there before that? Um, show or? Okay, let me, let me do a quick summary here. Okay. Left boarding school, ran away from home, 
went to Nimbin Festival, which was kind of like Australia's answer to Woodstock and because and, I seriously thought I was going to go to Woodstock at the age of 11, but obviously that didn't happen. So when I heard at the age of 15 that Nimbin was happening, it was like, I'm going. So off I went and Philippe Petit was performing at this festival, you know, and this was like a, a 10-day festival, I think it was, and they brought him over. It was run by, you know, by university students who put this whole thing together and they, they got a grant from the government to invite Philippe Petit over. And Philippe Petit was this um, impromptu performer of tightrope walking and balancing acts and juggling and all of this sort of thing. And he wore black and he had very pale white face and this shock of red hair. And he was incredibly talented and he didn't speak. So he was a bit like Marcel Marceau in my mind mm -hmm. and being that young. It was like, who is this guy? What is this? And then word got out from that festival that he was going down to Sydney and what he was going to do is he was going to tightrope walk across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It from was the, like, the top, is it? it was, well, sideways, sideways. There's these two uh, major pillars on the entrance to the bridge, which it's probably a good 100 foot wide or 200 foot wide, something yeah. like that. I, I've walked the distance, but yeah. so you're talking width-wise. Width-wise at of, the entrance to the bridge where the two okay. large columns are and, the, and he walked across the top. You couldn't do the length. It's way too long. You couldn't support cable that long. Uh, but um, yeah. So That's it was cool. a commando performance. No one knew it was going to happen, but that was his whole idea of coming to Australia. He oh, just went yeah. to the Nimbin Festival because that paid for his air ticket to get out there. But his real thing, because he'd done like a commando walk across Notre Dame, in Paris, he'd rigged a thing and walked across the roof of Notre Dame. He'd walked from, like, he'd rigged something across the Eiffel Tower. He'd walked across that. All of these bizarre things that he would sneak off and do, you know, and it's, you know, so he's quite the amazing character. And the thing that he did after Australia was the Twin Towers. He walked between the Twin Towers. He was oh. that, he's the tightrope walker who did that. Yeah. And they made a movie about it. I think it was called The Wire. Mm -hmm. And um, and he's still alive. He's I think he lives somewhere in Canada at the moment. But uh, but obviously he's quite old at this point. But mm -hmm. anyway, I got offered to come down to Sydney with them, and that's how I ended up in Sydney. So that was really the first thing to do with production, even though I had no idea I was doing anything to do with production, because you know they were we had to get the balancing beams, the steel cables, all the all the guy wires. We had to work out how we could get the film and we'd take the film. We're going to throw it off the side of the bridge. I was in the car down at the bottom waiting. We'd take it so the police didn't confiscate it. It was this huge spy versus spy type thing. It was quite exciting, really. <laughs> it was almost like a flash mob. Well, kind exactly. Of, yeah. one, exactly. Exciting. And that's what it was. I mean, people were starting to cross the bridge, the traffic in the morning. And some people are just like, what's all everyone stop for? And they're angry because they're late for work. And others are just getting out of their car and, looking up going, my God, look at that, you know. So it was quite amazing to watch and, and to be, a, I mean, I was a very small part of it, but it was just something to be such so involved in. It's like you get a rush from it and it was like, this is exciting. I like this, you know. So then when the music side of it came along, it was like it was a similar feeling. It was like, this is exciting. I like this, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's where I jumped to music, you know. And that's how it all started. Mm -hmm. Philippe Petit, without whether knowing it or not, he was involved. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So after the Philippe Petit gig, you met Swampy. Correct. And then, yeah. okay, okay. And he's the one who placed me at the front of house sound desk. Said, ah. you wait here and I'll come back and get you. And I'm, 
watching these guys mixing the sound and watching other people go on stage. It was like, this is, this is it. Whatever this is, this is what I want to be a part of. That's great. At the Whiskey A Go Go in at Sydney. The, at the Whiskey A Go Go in Sydney, Australia. That's great. Um, did you have, um, okay, so uh, people will read that um, you quickly got into sound and quickly uh, ended up running sound for ACDC after starting in their back line, right? Um, Mm-hmm. So um, did you have doubt in the beginning or how did you how did you deal with all of a sudden being thrust into the situation and now having to meet the expectations? Well, you know, I mean, I did start doing backline, like you mentioned. And so I was I was familiar with what the guys wanted. I knew what what sound they wanted from their backline equipment. I knew what they were looking for when we, we do shows supporting other bands, et cetera. So I think that the thing was, I mean, basically they just sent me one day to go and pick up a PA. I had no idea that that meant I was going to be operating it. I thought I was just going to pick something up. So it's like, okay, you know, off you go, go pick this up. Okay. You know, and so while I was there, the, you know, the couple of the guys said, you know, well, this is what you're going to need. You're going to need this and this. And it was like a three-way, basic three-way system you know, and, and that's all it was, you know. I mean, the, the desk had 12 channels, that was it. And we did the monitors and the front of house sound from the same desk. Challenge. <laughs> which which ACDC is um, not the ideal band to be doing monitors from the front of house, you know. But yeah. but it was very early days and, and the equipment was in very early days. So at the time it was like, ooh, you've got a flash PA, you know. I mean... It, I only ended up doing it because they've gone, oh, by the way, Tana, we want you to do the sound now because you know what we want. And so I guess I knew what they wanted without knowing that that, that meant I was supposed to be able to do sound, you know. Yeah. So there was never a lesson. There was no lessons involved ever. <laughs> it was just, here you go, take this, and, and we're off to the show now. It's like, okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was too embarrassed to fail, you know. It was like, well, I can't let them down. I just have to do this, and and that's yeah. you know, that's that's been the story of of how this industry started. People being thrown in the deep end, mm-hmm. and just being told sink or swim, you know. Mm-hmm. And and luckily, a lot of us learned how to swim really quickly and really well, you know. Yeah. But that's what it was. I mean, you know, God forbid there were any classes or or any time to take classes, you know. But in those yeah, days, you do. you could do 12, 14 shows in a week. You know, there was no time to, oh, well, I'm going to take the weekend or I'm going to take a week and go back to the factory and learn how to do this. Oh, no, that never happened. Only time you saw a factory was when you were picking up a piece of equipment or dropping off a broken piece of equipment. Never time for any learning. That was all done in the show, during the show. Wow, on the fly. Hmm. Absolutely on the fly, yes. So when you picked it up, did you, the first PA, did you, well, you didn't know at that point that you were going to run it, but did you um, kind of ask a little bit about it and, and kind of know where the on button is? <laughs> kind of ask, where's the master? Well, like, I did. I mean, what we did, they didn't actually set up the PA that they gave me and show me how to operate it. That never happened. What mm-hmm. they did was they, I think they had some bits of equipment set up in the, you know, like any, any production factory, you know, warehouse. There's a bit of equipment set up here. There's something here that they're working on. 
And so I'm just sort of looking at everything because, I mean, I think curiosity has got me pretty much everywhere in my life. I'm just curious. That's what it is. That's how I am. And it's like, and I want to know if there's something there, I want to know how it works and why it works, which I think is just as important on how it works, you know, is knowing why. But um, so, you know, that luckily one of the people at the warehouse was familiar with Bon Scott, who was the original singer. He was actually a guitar player in an earlier band that Bon was in. So he did say, he said, you know what, you're going to need to do this with Bon's voice. You're going to need this, you know, so that was as near as I got to anything. You know, he said, I mean, the advice was make sure Angus and Malcolm keep their guitars turned down. <laughs> yeah. I said, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, that's going to work. <laughs> we'll so, try. <laughs> that, was, that was the advice I got. Make sure they keep the guitars turned down. Yeah. And this system should work for you. Should? Wait, what? <laughs> As you turn them down, they're turning up on the stage. Oh, exactly. Just like this, boom, across the across the knobs on a Marshall stack, zoom, you can yeah. get them all up to 10. <laughs> <laughs> One swipe of the wrist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or like, 11. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, or 11, exactly. <laughs> Let's see. So so there was no room for, for doubt or of overcoming doubt, was there? There was no, it's just jump in, better do it. Just let's just learn it. It was, it was jump in and do it. And to be honest, it got me off the stage. It was a little embarrassing in those days being a female on the stage because everyone in the audience would be like, Ooh, it's a girl. What are you doing? Get off the early. You're going to hurt yourself. It's like, Oh, seriously. You know, <laughs> it was like, so. The thing that I disliked the most was having to go onto the stage when the you know in the middle of a show, like if I was changing guitars out or if something would fallen over and you had to pick it up, because people would start yelling and hollering because I was a girl, and it was embarrassing, you know. And it was like so when they said front of house sound, it was embarrassment. Getting rid of the embarrassment overrode the fear of having to learn something new and figure it out. You know, I was happy it was as far away from the stage as I could get, so I thought this is good. <laughs> it works out. Yeah. yeah. I will figure this one out. Yeah. So there's no heckling from the band or crew. It was all from the audience. Yeah. I mean the band the oh. band selected me. I, I you know, when I first first went met with them, we had did some sort of interview of sorts. I mean it was very casual, but you know, they're very selective of who they let into their inner circle even way back then. So, you know, they it's you know, as you know, with a lot of bands, it's just as important if they like you and trust you mm-hmm. as to how, you know, not how well you do your job. That has to be done well, of course. But if they have someone who they know and like and trust who does a good job and someone who they don't know or don't like, then who's going to get the job? Of course, it's going to be the person that they like and the one that they trust and the one they feel comfortable with, you know. Yeah. So that was that was always, they were always very supportive, very supportive. I'd get from, like, other bands, crews would, would rag a bit, you know, like, oh, you know, and it's just like, oh. I was pretty wild back then, though. I could give as much as I got. <laughs> so I would give it back quite as much as I got. That's so, great. So there was that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so was there a point, did you start feeling that there was, like, a ceiling for you that you knew you had to move on? And it, it, your your kind of experience was topping out there. 
Yeah, with sound, what happened was there was, like I mentioned earlier, there was no one to teach me because I was doing the front of house and the monitors from the front of house. And the only, the rest of the crew would help me set up the PA, but there was no other crew, like sound people on the crew. There was just me. And I obviously really wasn't a sound person. So when ACDC took time to break for their second album, I kind of thought it might be a good time to move on and go somewhere where I could find something that, you know, where I could learn, you know. So that's that's when that decision came. It was a, it was a little sad because you get attached to them, you know, you get attached to the bands that you work for directly. Sure. But but it, it, it was time, you know, and it was time for them too because when they'd done their second album, they were going to go, they were going up a level, so they'd be going to, like, you know, larger larger venues, so it would be a much larger sound system, and I would have to know how to operate that, you know, and I'd, I'd be in charge of a crew and we'd separate, obviously, finally, they'd get to separate the monitors from the front of house, mm-hmm. you know, so would I do monitors, would I stay doing front of house, how would I have time to learn anything, what do I do? So I skipped to... Um, in the downtime, which was only a month, so the downtime, which meant I didn't have time to learn for them before we went back out on the road again, you know, I just, there was no time, you know, so it was better to move, you know. So in that time, I got offered a job doing lighting, which I thought, ooh, lighting, it's it's dirty, it's hard. Those those things are metal and they're sharp and it's ugly And because everything was still made out of steel in those days. It was like, oh, my God. It's like, what is a ton? I know, it was outrageous. And tons of cable, tons and tons of cable. It was like, ew, this is, I don't know if this is a good idea or not. But I knew I could learn. So I thought, you know, I'll take the job. And it was, a, and it was an honour to be offered the job because it was working for the major promoter in Australia at the time. And it was the primo crew in Australia. I mean, there were seven of us. And people would, you know, people would die for that job. I mean, they would literally do anything to be on that crew because you got to work with all the international acts that came through. You got to learn the latest in the technology that was changing. You'd see, you know, the equipment that they bought out, how it was getting different and how things were changing. And, and you'd be the first to see all this in the country. So it was, it was a really good spot to land. It was a good spot to land. And I was very, very lucky. And I was very grateful. Uh, what company was that? It was Paul Dainty, who's still a major promoter in Australia to this day. And at the time, he had the production company, which was ACT. Mm-hmm. And um, that was run by a man called Ron Blackmore, who um, who was just fabulous. And, and he was so good to me. So good. So, you know, nothing was of effort. He's like, we will look after you. We will train you. We will teach you whatever you need to know. We're here, you know, and you can't ask for more than that. Yeah. especially back then when, you know, when I was still the only girl out there, you know. So it was a huge thing. It was a huge thing and I was very, very fortunate. And it was exactly what you were looking for. And it was exactly what I was looking for. And I think, I believe to this day, the only reason why I got that job was because I'd always been so good to other bands that did shows with us. Mm-hmm. So the crews remembered that. And so when a couple of those crew guys got onto the ACT crew, they went, they, and someone said, well, what about Tana? They went, you know what? She's always been so good to us. You know, she's always let us use the whole system. She's always made room on the stage for us, supporting. Yes, let's get her in. She's always, she's got a great attitude. 
you know, and, and that's what that's what makes it so important. So important. Think of the other crews. Always work with the other crews. It's mm. an important thing. It will pay you. It will pay you back in the long run. Really will. Mm-hmm. So, so they reached out to you. Is that how you found the position? Yeah. Well, I mean, I put the word out that I was looking, and then you know, a couple of the crew guys came into town on a tour. Mm-hmm. And we were all just hanging out, having drinks or whatever, you know. And I think I'd gone to the show, and mm-hmm. they said, "Well, why don't you? Why don't you think about doing it?" You know. And I was like, "Well, I don't know, you know, because I was offered other bands, like Australian bands, offered me to do their front of house sound." Yeah, at that point. Mm-hmm. But they're going like, "Yeah, you can do ACDC, then you can do us, just like ACDC." And that to me was such a mistake. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know what? You're not ACDC to start with, and I haven't learned anymore, so I can still only go to that level, you know. I mean, I could have taken the job and I could have got a decent salary, but I'd probably still be there doing local bands in pub gigs because Mm -hmm. that would be a niche that I got stuck in, you know, and I just didn't want to get stuck in any niche. I just wanted to discover anything I could about the industry. Yeah. You know, learning, always learning. And at that point you were at what age at that point? 16, 17, I think I was only, I think I was 17 by then. Yeah, just turned 17. Definitely don't <laughs> want to stay stagnant at 17. Yeah. 17 and working for bands like Carlos Santana and <laughs> Neil Diamond and, you know, status quo, different English bands, you know, it's just, it was amazing, you know, that I did seven major international tours in as many months, I think it was, you know, it was just amazing. It was just complete chaos but I learned so much in that time you know and and then I got hired directly by Neil Diamond's crew actually Patrick Stansfield who's a really well-known tour manager over here he's unfortunately passed now but he became a lifelong friend as well from way back when I was 17 years old you know right through until his death we were good friends you know thank you for listening to the sound girls podcast sponsored by QSC. Join us next week on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or wherever you find your podcasts. For more information, check out our website at soundgirls.org. Looking for more audio-related podcasts? Check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all of the other podcasts in the Alliance, make sure to visit audiopodcast.org.